Chapter 6, starting in verse 1. And just to, going to go rewind just a little bit because it's been a couple weeks. So up till now, in Acts 5, 51, it says that the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Uh, day after day in the temple, courts, and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. So if you remember correctly, the, the, the apostles were, were, were basically um, tried before the Sanhedrin. Um, and the Sanhedrin very much so did not like the effect they had on the local community. They did not want them preaching at the temple about Jesus Christ. Full stop. People were receiving Jesus and they were changing and there were exciting things happen. But the Sanhedrin did not like it. They were very jealous and they wanted it to stop. So they made a kind of pseudo compromise where they beat him up a little bit and sent him on the road and just said, don't do this no more. But they still did it. So the Sanhedrin decided to turn a blind eye. Let's just ignore this for a while. But the disciples, their attitude was, was very much so, or the apostles rather, were very much so encouraged. Wow, we got to suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ. And if anything, it didn't stop them. It encouraged them to go more and more and to trust more and more in God's strength and in God's power. That's important to think about as we move on to the next chapter, chapter 6. In the next slide, we have a bit of an issue, a bit of a problem. It's almost like a, a sideline here, but it makes sense because it introduces us to a man named Stephen. And I titled this slide, kind of a funny name, Disputation of Distribution. It's kind of a big one. Try to say that six times really fast. And we see in Acts 6, after 1, we've got a disputation, some disputing about how the funds. Because remember, the church was quite communal. You know, everyone shared. But the problem is there, were, um, there was a problem here with, with an issue with widows, okay? And, and there was concern about it. And so here we see the concern and how the problem was dealt with. And this solution introduces us, introduces us to a very important man named Stephen. So it says in Acts 6.1, In those days when the number of disciples were increasing, the Hellenistic Jews, and that is the Jews who were the Greek speaking, they were more from the West, if you will, came in from the West, Turkey, modern Turkey, you know, Asia and beyond, Greece, Rome. They were the Greek or Hellenistic, culturally speaking Jews, okay? And they complained against the Hebraic Jews. Of course, the Hebraic Jews were, you know, the, the local boys, if you will. They were the Aramaic-speaking Jews. And there was already cultural tension between the two groups, even prior to Jesus and prior to these people receiving Jesus. There was tension. But as now belonging to the church, we need to reconcile certain cultural tish, you know, tensions and cultural issues Okay, but the issue here at hand was how the widows were being treated. They were being overlooked, it was said. They were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered 
all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. So basically, this is some simple, basic time management problem issues. We can't stop because what we're doing is, is, is important. It's fruitful. If anything, Satan's going to want to stop them from getting the word preached. So little petty issues. And bear in mind, this is not a petty issue. It's important that the widows get their food, right? It's important. But however, it's something that Satan could use to distract the apostles from doing what they're called to do, and that's to preach the word. Go out and tell people about Jesus as the church was growing rapidly, massively. So they said, we need to find people to help. And the thing is, in ministry, there's so many different ways we can help each other out and get involved. And here they said, we can't stop what we're doing and wait on tables. Let's find some people. But not just any Joe Schmo, any person who can ha- actually do this. And by the way, waiting on tables, is, is um, there's two implications. First of all, there's like the idea of distributing food. But it's also managing funds. Okay, It's also about how do we redistribute funds. So it's an economic responsibility. So they're not going to get just anyone to do it. They want to make sure the people who do it are people who are full of spirit and full of wisdom, as it says in verse 3. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known, known, their reputation, they've been witnessed, they have been affirmed, they have character, people have experienced them. That's where the word um, matreo comes from, which is funny, funny enough where the word martyr comes from, a witness. And oddly enough, or ironically enough, that's what Stephen is going to become, the believed to be the first known mark, Christian martyr. But regardless, a reputation. Known to be godly. Known to be a person who has spirit. And the word spirit, um, pneuma, spirits refers to also the Holy Spirit and just God and God's spiritual touch on our lives. And the funny thing about that word is we could use it, and it has been used to talk about a person who's spirited, like passionate. And I believe Stephen and these people were very passionate but it's not just that. It's, just, it's not just passion for the passion's sake. It's passion for God. It's passion for what God's doing, God's will. And so the Holy Spirit is a big part of that passion, okay? But not just spirited, but full of wisdom. Sophia, love that word. Sophia, wisdom, broad and full of intelligence. Use of the knowledge of, of very diverse matters. Intelligent, wise, brain operating, so focused, healthy, People. So it wasn't just some schmo. Hey, just get schmo to do the tables. No, they, they wanted someone who's full, who knew Jesus, was full of spirit, full of the Holy Spirit, passionate and intelligence to this job. And one of these peoples is the guy we're going to be introduced to today and talk about today and a little bit next week. And that's the next slide. And that's Stephen. Acts 6, verse 5 goes on to say, this proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, one of the fellows, who we're going to talk about a lot today. A man full of faith, okay? So not only do you meet that criteria of being filled with the Spirit and being wise, full of understanding, but he's also a man of faith. And that's important, this faith aspect. And we're going we're to talk about this quite a bit in the next few moments. Faith. Faith filled with the Holy Spirit. And also these other fellows. Side note, is if you remember, the, 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 the issue at hand is the Greek-speaking widows, you know, the, the Hellenistics were being overlooked. And it's funny that they chose Hellenistic people to help deal with the problem because the names, you can tell by the names that they were Greek names. So, you know, so, so they had these people come and say, okay, fine, if you have a problem, you sort it out yourself. And which is my ministry mentality. Is there a problem? Good, go sort it out. <laughs> God's leading you, God's guiding you, do it. So they hear these, these Hellenistic Jews who are not Christians, bear in mind, they're not Jews, they're Jews who are fulfilled, they're Christians. Philip 
was one as well, and these other guys, the names. And then um, they were converted to Judaism, but also they were Greeks turned to Jews, but also now the Christians. And they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid hands on them. So they said, yeah, this is what you want. Let's pray for them. Let's lay our hands on them in agreement. Now get to work. So as a consequence, the word of God spread. And that's an important thing. It could have been a distraction. But instead, here's the man, Stephen, who could be used. He wasn't used, even though he's full of the spirit and full of wisdom and full of faith, all these wonderful things, he wasn't used at that particular role that the apostles were doing. But man, oh man, we needed him. We need him. And let's give him something that we really need his skills and talents to do. His calling upon his life so that we can do what we need to do, which is very important. That's the spreading of God's word. So the numbers of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests. Ah, this is interesting. And a large number of priests. What does that mean? Well, this is, again, this is hitting hard, close to the heart of the issue. The Sanhedrin is already upset that they're, you know, the, the, these lay people are coming to Christ. These, these, these simpletons are coming to Christ. Now the priests themselves are listening to the gospel. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, these are like people who they bump in elbows with. You're supposed to be working for us, mate. What are you doing with the, with the Christian freakos? You know what I'm saying? This is a problem for Sanhedrin. They're looking at this and going, wait a second. Now priests are becoming obedient to the faith. Well, we know what that means. According to them, they're being freaks. But the reality is they're being obedient because they've seen the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And they've repented and have turned to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And now they're obedient to that faith. So this is causing a problem for Sanhedrin. So they're just kind of brewing in the background, if you can see that in your minds. So now, Stephen, now Stephen, a man full of grace, God's grace, grace, other word grace, charis, that which affords joy, pleasure, delight, sweetness, charm, loveliness. I'm thinking about changing my name to Grace, because that, this, what are you laughing at, Danny? <laughs> But still, he's known a man, not just a bit graceful at time to time, kind of one of those manic guys who's he's angry at one time and then graceful other times, you know, which is more like me. <laughs> but rather, he was a man who's full of grace, always filled with God's joy and pleasure, delight, sweetness, charm, loveliness. And not just a, but not a Passover kind of wimpy kind of guy either, because he's also full of God's power. Dynamis, where we, you know, get the word, of course, dynamite from. Strength, power, ability. So this man was a pretty awesome guy. I mean, if anything, you could argue, well, this guy is so good, he should be out doing what the apostles are doing. No, he should be doing what God has him doing. And when he does it, he does it well, amazing things will happen. Okay? So he performed great, also performed great wonders. So again, part of his reputation, he was known for doing wonderful things, signs among the peoples. But however, here's the thing. Here's where the problem comes in. And it wasn't the Sanhedrin that stepped up. It was this little group of people, this little cults, this little subgroup of people called the Synagogue of the Freedmen. This is where the opposition arises in verse 9. So, however, from members of the Synagogue of the Freedmen, as it was called, Jews of all around the world, from Africa, Cyrene, Alexandria, as well as the province of uh, Cilicia and Asia, so again, up to northwest, who began to argue with Stephen. So again, you know, you can see the Sanhedrin, they're already upset, but they want to keep politically things a bit on the cool, the lowdown. But here's Stephen, you know, who's known for wonders and signs, and he's talking with great clarity and, and, 
and persuasion. And then these synagogue of the freedmen people are getting frustrated and they want to cause problems. They want to rattle that cage. So you can see this in Hedron already thinking, oh man, we have to get involved with this. And they will. So they start arguing with Stephen, causing bother, if you will. But they could not stand up against the wisdom and the spirit that God gave him as he spoke. So again, Stephen gave really good, wise, simple, straightforward answers. He was speaking the truth. And these guys didn't like it. And they couldn't stand against it. Next slide. So that nasty old Sanhedrin is awakened again. In verse 11. And they secretly persuaded some men to say, so in order to get the attention of Sanhedrin, they have to bring a charge, like a formal accusation. So they get these men to secretly come in and to bring these false charges against Stephen. So they say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So that's the accusation, blasphemy. Okay, so remember that. The accusation is blasphemy. To speak erroneous, false, defaming words against Moses and God. So they stared at the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses. Now, false witnesses don't necessarily mean that they were, what they were saying here was incorrect. It means their motivation was incorrect. Because some of the things that he says here, he's not contesting. Because when he defends himself, he's going to clarify what he says. And actually, what he says is in kind of, you know, it's one of those like kind of truths type of situation. It's a twisting of the truths. This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. Yeah, because he's talking about the new covenant. You know what I'm saying? So they don't like that. We don't want to hear his new. We, want, we, we, we quite like the old. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs. Yes, Jesus is changing things. He is changing the customs that Moses handed down. That was a partial system. It was incomplete, but Jesus has fulfilled it. Plus, Jesus more than anything is the man that Moses and Abraham, all the forefathers spoke about and pointed towards and waited for. And that's what he's going to say very soon in his discourse here. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intensely at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Next slide. So what's the charge? The charge is blasphemy. How? Because he's misrepresenting Moses. So supposedly misrepresenting Moses and God. The customs that God's given through Moses. You know, the law and the temple itself. So what Stephen's going to do here, what we're going to see in the next chapter, is Stephen's going to argue that he's not blaspheming. What he believes and what he speaks is actually commonly accepted historical facts. Everything he says, you can't contest the facts. It's what's commonly believed and held to be true historically amongst all the, the good Jewish people, right? That's it. I'm just talking, and that's what he's going to do when we're going to see in the, in the moments here. Number two, Stephen, he's going to draw his argument from what was then known about God and God's historical interaction with man, i.e. with Abraham with Moses and all the prophets. He's just going to talk about how God has interacted with us and what he's, what he's done. His argument, or three, is free from doubt and blasphemy because it was based on his accepted historical facts. So basically he's saying, this is what I believe, this is what I've been teaching. Tell me where it's blasphemous. But the problem is, 
where they're going to settle is in his conclusion. That actually is very logical. It does follow. That's verse 4. His conclusion, whilst being true to these historical facts, is very offensive to the Sanhedrin. Because what it does is it points to the poor behavior of the people of Israel and how they have been faithless. They have been disobedient to God. So five, therefore, there are faithful patriarchs, forefathers, if you will, and there are also faithless ones. Now, the cool thing is, the stewards in his exposition to Hebrews 11 shows the faithful ones and how they have been faithful. But, but he's going to get to very soon that a lot of these faithful forefathers were actually killed because of their faith. They were martyred because of their faith. They were killed. They were, they were basically, yeah, they were turned on by their own people. And that, those people who turn against God and God's chosen ones, if you will, the faithful ones, are the faithless fathers that I think he's going to start to illuminate here. And actually, his sermon that we're going to see in a moment is very similar to Hebrews 11. It's a historical line draws, but you're going to see a parallel of the faithful ones that God works with and are faithful to God and God uses, but also the ones who are paralleling them, the faithless ones who oppose God and go oppose God's faithful ones. And unfortunately, he's going to show that Stephen in the church falls in that line while the Sanhedrin follows this line. And as you can see, that's not going to be, that's not going to fare out well for him. So next slide, please. And I'm going to read this quite quickly. We're going to try to read all of Acts 7-1. But I want to read it as if it's Stephen speaking here. And think about what I just said, the line. Think about what I just said here, about the line of faithless, or faithful ones, and God interacting with them, in the line of the faithless ones who are disobedient and reject God and reject God's chosen ones. I want to read through it. And when I start reading it, Gary, as you know, when we get to the end, just keep advancing the slide. And so I'm not going to give much more because I've already introduced it. I already spoke a lot about what we're going to see here. But I want you to now read for yourself through this chapter, chapter 7. Okay? And I put little subtitles and little notes and little highlights. But I want to just read it as if we're sitting here listening to Stephen speak to Speak himself, basically. Because I think he said it well. I don't need to add much to it, to be honest with you guys. So, and again, this is the longest, most thorough historical exposition of the book of Acts. It's beautiful. It's a long chapter. So let's get started. Verse 1 of Acts 7 says this. And this is, this is Stephen saying, well, then the high priest asked Stephen, rather, are these charges true? So here he is defending himself. Am I blaspheming? Am I a blasphemer? You tell me. So he replied in verse 2, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia. Before he lived in Haran, leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So here we see God doing something. He's interacting with a person. That person is Abraham. So verse 4, he left the land, the Chaldeans, and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land. So we see God making promises, God working with people. And by the way, you can't really see the bold very well there, but the bolded ones are the parts I'm going to show you where God's interacting and doing something for the faithful ones. If you see it underscored, that's the faithless ones opposing it. So just to let you know, that's how I kind of marked it, if you can see the bold. It's kind of hard, but the underscores are more clear. So anyways, verse 6. So God spoke to him in this way. For 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, 
and they will be enslaved and mistreated. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. God said, and afterward, they will come out of the country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. Ironically enough, he's going to make note of that circumcision and how they might be circumcised physically, but their hearts are not circumcised. Anyways, Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. Here we see now Joseph introduced, faithful Joseph, as opposed to his faithless brothers, because the patriarchs were jealous. So we have the faithless ones, the patriarchs. Now bear in mind, the faithful ones are perfect, and we can look at their lives and say that they weren't perfect. They made a lot of mistakes. But the line we're trying to draw here is how, you know, there's those who are faithful, but yet those are those who are faithless, who are opposing and persecuting and turning against God and God's chosen ones. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him into slavery into Egypt. But, as, but God still was with Joseph. God was with him and rescued him from all of his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all of Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers for the first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he... And our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had brought from the sons of Hamar and Shechem for a certain sum of money. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham. Again, God made promise to Abraham. He told him this is going to happen. God was completely, utterly true to his word. Abraham trusted in him and God fulfilled his promises. Moving on, the number of the people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came into power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses. Now we have Moses, faithful Moses. But yet also we have, again, the brothers. We're not interested in Egypt. We're interested in Moses' brothers, fellow Israelites. And how they, as even slaves, were faithless. At that time, Moses, the chosen one from God, faithful Moses. And he was no ordinary child. He was so unique, so special. For three months he carried or cared for by his family. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as his own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them be mistreated by an Egyptian. So he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptians. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside. So again, God said, go rescue people. And you can see resistance. 
from the people, even as slaves. Who, who do you think you are, Moses? What are you going to do? Kill us now? <coughs> he said, who made you ruler and judge over us? That sounds so petty. It sounds so like, who do you think you are? Tell me what you, you know, tell me about your Jesus. Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Which, by the way, wasn't yesterday. It was many, many, many years ago. When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian. Actually, what is I'm sorry. Confusion. When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses. Again, God's promises. God remembered. God sent his angel to speak to Moses. And then he had this amazing experience on Mount Sinai. So the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai, when he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. He went over to get a closer look. He heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen that you oppressed my people in Egypt. I have heard the groaning and have come down to set them free. Now, come, I will send you back to Egypt. Again, God's still interacting. He's still working with these people. Be faithful, Moses. Be strong. But the people, your people I'm trying to save, they'll want it. They're resisting me. This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? who was sent to be the ruler and delivered by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the burning bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for the 40 years in the wilderness. And again, we could always stop and wonder why were they in the wilderness for 40 years? Again, because of their disobedience, which we'll get to in a moment. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. You see how now he's starting to get to Jesus. Even Moses said, there's going to be a prophet lightning among your people. You know, this righteous one, which we'll see in verse 52. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angels spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors. And he received living words to pass on to us. But, how do they respond? But, our ancestors refused to obey. Do you see there's a distinction between the faithful ones, but yet the common strand of the people is disobedience, faithlessness. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was a time when they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and, re- and reveled in what, they, what their own hands had made. But God Turn away from them. He, can't, he, he asked you, you're going to worship another God? You're going to turn from me? Then on you go. And he gave him over to the worship of the sun, the moon, the stars. And this agrees with what was written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings? Forty years in the wilderness, people of Israel, you have taken up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your God, Repham, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile. Beyond Babylon. So, what about the tabernacles and the covenant laws, the temples? Well, they don't mean anything without faith. All these wonderful things that God gave to Israel are pointless if you don't have faith and trust in God and obedience towards Him. 
Verse 44 goes on to say, Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from, our, from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. So that's where the temple finally appears. This temple that they're so protective over, they're so concerned about. However, by the way, guys, P.S. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? So everything he's done so far, everything he said so far cannot be contested. It cannot be denied. Because this is acceptable historical facts and information that the, that, that the Sanhedrin and everyone would already believe at the time. Okay? What's the problem? But you also see in this, in this as it's, he's telling us historical facts again, details, he's drawing a line of how God has sent prophet time and time and time, representatives of God time and time again. But what, how, have you, how have you responded to it? With nothing but disobedience. And then his conclusion is here. And this conclusion is not going to fare well for him. In verse 51, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. Yeah, you might be physically circumcised. However, your hearts are fleshly. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. God's doing something and you're resisting it. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? And again, if you look at Hebrews 11, especially the part we're, we're getting to next with Stuart, is literally there, these, these, these prophets will be known for the method of their death. Because that's, you know, the guy got his head cut off. The guy who got, you know, fell on the sword. You know, all these, you know, this is how that person died. Because that's what they did. They killed the righteous ones, the prophets that God sent before. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. Okay, I'm sorry. Then even, they even killed those who pre predicted the coming of the righteous one. That's Jesus Christ, whom you have betrayed and murdered. You who have received the law, this thing that you're so precious of, that was given through angels, but you have not obeyed it. It's one thing to have it, but it's pointless unless you obey it. And that's where faithfulness comes from, guys. So we're done. We're going to finish with this application here. God has interacted, integrated. That's the wrong word. I was tired when I did this. God has interacted, not integrated, interacted with mankind. Okay? He has. He has interacted with us. He's, he's, he's worked. He's, he's spoken to people. He's, he's given us direct messages. And we have that in our Bibles today even. Mankind is prone to disobedience towards God. And that's the problem. This is what sin's all about. It's man's nature, his disposition to be disobedient towards God. And everything, really. Thank you, Gary. He, God, has sent his son to redeem mankind from his sin, from this, his tendency to be disobedient. But we have to repent. We have to turn. We need to stop being disobedient. And a part of that is walking in faith. Like, you know what? Okay, fine. 
not me anymore, now it's you, God. And so the bottom line is, we have some who have faith in God and have received his son. Should we capital it, Gary, please? His son. And God's, God's, possibly yes, God's promises. But others have not. Due to this serious illness called stiff-neckedness. Others might call it stubborn pride. I don't want God's way. I don't want the way of Jesus. I don't want to be faithful like Moses. They're good stories. They get us through a Sunday morning. But you know what? I don't want to give my life over. That's the bottom line, isn't it, though, guys? So what ought we to do then? Well, let's look at what what Paul says in Philippians 2.12, and we'll end with this. Dear friends, you always follow my instructions. So, obedient, when I was with you, to my face, on Sunday mornings. You know what I'm saying? And now that I'm away, so throughout the week, (laughs) it is even more important. Work hard to show the results, your fruit, your salvation. Be people like Stephen who have a great reputation of being faithful and full of spirit and wisdom, right? Work hard to show the results of your salvation. How? By obeying God with deep reverence and fear. 